0: Hi, I'm Terry. And I'm Seal. We are so excited about <laughs> launching our podcast called Two Scoops, which is designed to empower you to lead a healthier lifestyle. Each episode
1: will provide helpful tips on reframing your thinking and considering new possibilities for your life.
0: So I'm Terry. <laughs> and I'm Seal. And we're here with Two Scoops of Inspiration and A friend of mine, and I'm so happy to be able to say that, Jonathan Fisher, who is a Harvard-trained cardiologist who works here in Charlotte, North Carolina for Novant Healthcare, And I really like him because he's also a mindfulness um, practitioner, meditates and does yoga. So we actually all three of us have a lot in common as it relates to lifestyle and trying to take care of ourselves from the inside out. And this was such a perfect time to invite you back on as a guest because of the current situation that we're in. COVID-19 has sort of flipped us on our bellies and I think kind of created this big pause. And last time we interviewed you, we would have never fathomed 30 days later, we would be Zooming you in as you're on a nature walk (laughs) to talk about how this is impacting you personally, the hospital mm. and our, our country and really globally. Mm. So I might just mm. start with that very powerful question. How have you personally had to pivot and what does that look like, feel like?
2: Well, thank you so much for having me here today, Terry and Seal. It's so fun being with you and this is a real treat. So thank you for what you're doing. The pivot, it's a big pivot. its I was going to say it's like 180 degrees or 360 or 720, but it almost feels like everything just keeps pivoting and spinning. And the challenge is to find solid ground because I'm so used to living on solid ground, uh, both as a doctor dealing with facts and figures and what works and what doesn't. And then in my own life, I tend to gravitate towards certainty. You know, we all like to have things that we are secure in. And so change is hard to begin with. And it's a lifetime practice of learning to be with change without resisting it when it's sort of useless and talk about change, um, there isn't one aspect of our entire society right now that isn't being transformed. And what I find exciting is that despite the fear, and we can talk a lot about fear, uh, and we can talk about what it means to, to talk too much about fear, despite that, there's incredible opportunities right now for each and every one of us to examine our lives, to examine our approach to our personal and professional lives, and to look at our core values and say, how have I been living up to now? There's so much danger right now. Friends can get sick. Loved ones can get sick. Our jobs are threatened. What's most important to us? And so in terms of a pivot, uh, this is, as you said, the ultimate pause. And it's What's kind of neat, I think, is that it's not just you and me and three of us pausing. The whole world is pausing right now. And we're pausing because if we don't, if we just march forward without a plan, we know that nature has its way and this virus is deadly. That's kind of my overall global thinking about this. In terms of specifics, there's very real stuff. I had my wedding ring off for the first time in 15 years for two weeks, and so did my wife because... The virus can hide underneath small surfaces if you're in contact. And so I was in the hospital for two weeks and it's advised to take it off. And so it sat in a little drawer. I can't hug my family the way that I could before. So I'm a very kind of physical person. I like contact and connection. And this is incredibly challenging because what in a way is life threatening, which could be to hug someone who had COVID or be near them when they sneeze, that same person. Getting a hug from them, or even a handshake or a smile up close, is sort of life affirming, right? If, if we're not sick, and so how do we deal with that shift in the way that humans relate to each other? Um, having to examine that as well.
0: So that's a, a really powerful statement. And two things come to mind: is how are you doing, and what are you doing? Kind of shared a little bit of that, the how you're doing, but maybe dive into that a little bit more, and then what you're doing to manage through this, because we're all human, Mm -hmm. and to hear what a doctor's doing to take care of himself, and how you're going about doing that, what that looks like, would be, I think, interesting for our listeners.
2: The honest story of how I'm doing is that facing a lot of challenges personally, this is emotionally incredibly hard. I spent decades dealing with anxiety, dealing with some depression, and so those visitors come back to me now and I I notice them, and I welcome them, and I see them coming, and I know where my mind has the potential to go if I'm not watching. And so what that looks like in real life is that I'll be in the hospital and working a 10 or 11-hour shift, and uh, the beeper will be going off, and I'll hear that the patient is coming in with a cough or a fever, and right away, I have tremendous fear. On the one hand, it's my calling to take care of people. On the other hand, I have a wife and children who I could transmit this to, and I could make them sick. And then I worry about, you know, my own mortality and all that. Because even though this is predominantly making people who are over the age of 60 or 70 very sick, we are seeing younger people, even in the age of kind of 40 to 60 or younger, being affected in some quite seriously. So that's one very real way that I face these old emotions of fear coming up day in and day out. And then it doesn't just last in the daytime. It's also at nighttime as well. So I'll have difficulty falling asleep. I'll have difficulty staying asleep. I'll have difficulty going back to sleep. And those are the the main challenges. And then as kind of a family guy, there's more conflict at home. Everybody is in tight quarters. And depending on where we are are in our lives, some of us can cope better and i and i just told you about anxiety and i'm the one who's supposed to be coping better i have three small children and so so what does it mean to to be a mindful parent in the midst of crisis and then before it was just trying to help children grow right and to grow and to thrive and to flourish and now it's helping children understand chaos without turning it towards fear and teaching them how to cope so those are some day to day things and then little stuff like I used to like to go out to eat, and so, okay, that's gone. I like getting takeout, so now we have to be careful with the bags and stuff like that. Terry, I think beneath the surface, it's uh, grief. It's a real grief and it's a sadness about what's been lost. And until you ask the question, I reflect on these things, but I don't allow myself to dwell on them too much because if I do, part of me knows that it could spiral downward, and I don't think that that's helpful to anybody. I can't be helpful to you and to SEAL and to the whole group if all I'm doing is being caught up in my own mind. My mind is a great place to be, but it can also be a pretty scary place to be. I'm careful about nurturing my own mind and watching it when I feel overwhelmed. Then we can talk about different ways. We can create uh, an environment in our own mind that feels safe, even when things are very, very scary.
0: I'd love for you to dive right into that. I think to. Please go ahead and talk about that. I think people are ears (laughs) wide open.
2: The starting point for me is understanding where the anxiety comes from and where panic comes from and where stress comes from. And a lot of it is understanding that number one, the mind and the body are connected. So this old idea that, well, it's all in your head or, or, you know what, you're just tense. That's out the window. So recognizing that if what we're trying to do is to find a place of calm and comfort and security, we have to recognize that the tension lives in our mind and also in our body, and we have to address both. So if I was to just take an anxiety pill, for example, that doesn't replace stretching, it doesn't replace exercise, it doesn't replace yoga. On the other hand, if I find that exercise is a stress reducer, but I never talk about the longing uh, for what I used to have and the loss and the feelings of loneliness and grief, or at least process them on paper with someone else, I'm only addressing half of it. So I I believe very strongly in kind of a holistic approach where we start with the mind and we add in the body as well. Uh, And so starting with the mind, it means first finding a place of calm. So when everything's spiraling out of control, we need to grab onto something. The wonderful thing is that there are so many things we can grab onto, and I like to refer to those as anchors. So what's your anchor? The question is, your anchor can be something as simple as looking back at your own life and remembering a time when you felt secure and safe and calm. And it may have been uh, when you were in your element or in the zone or when you were helping someone else or when you were uh, loving someone else. Or it may have been when you were on your yoga mat and in in Shavasana and you felt very calm. So the first thing is really knowing that there is an anchor that we can always find and we can talk about the many different anchors. And also knowing that for me, the most powerful anchor is actually the anchor of awareness. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So when we get stressed out, the biggest risk, the biggest danger is that we don't realize that we're getting stressed out. It's kind of like if, uh, if you boil a frog slowly, it never jumps out because it doesn't know. But what happens is so often we get caught up in stress every minute, every minute, every hour, every hour, and then we explode. The practice of mindfulness, or we can call it mindful awareness, where it's a strengthening of the brain's ability to notice emotions as they are arising, that practice lets us detect very, very early the moment we feel stressed or when we develop anxious thoughts in our mind about the future that hasn't even happened yet or the past that maybe didn't happen the way we remember it. So so I would say the steps are, number one, becoming aware that we're stressed, number two, finding an anchor to kind of pay attention to. And the next step is noticing how we're going to relate to stress and fear and panic and anxiety. And instead of getting caught up with it, choosing to just be aware of it and get some distance from it. It's called psychological distance. It's called decentering, um, And one of the ways to do that is giving it a name, a label. We take the feeling from inside our crazy brain and we remove it in a sense and just look at it. We can do that by writing it down in a journal. We can do that by talking to a therapist or a close friend. Or we can even do that just by kind of talking to ourselves in a way, saying, oh, this is what anxiety is like. And it may not sound like much, but that very, very important step helps us to move towards objectivity where we don't get so swept away by our emotions.
1: I appreciate just that piece of advice, the writing it down. We talked. Earlier, we talked about the senses with Terry's friend, Cindy, that was on. And she's a therapist, and she talked about uh, that and, and talked about gratitude. And then this is just another way for us to, to really face the reality of what you're feeling. And then writing it down, I think, even makes it more real and
0: able to like address it. Jonathan, I had a question because I'm sort of mm-hmm. following this train of thought starting first in awareness and then finding an anchor that brings you to a place of stillness and maybe a little bit deeper awareness and something that maybe brings in some positive thoughts. I wanted to get you to clarify that for me when you say anchor, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. clarify that. And then I'm going to have a subsequent
2: question. Sure. So we're not yet in any positive thoughts, (laughs) at least the way that I approach this. Um, I think there's a danger, Terry, and and I think you know what I'm talking about, you know, what they say, the power of positive thinking, and we can talk maybe even another episode, if you want, about manifesting and visualization versus accepting reality as it is in this moment without pretending like it's better than it is or worse than it is, because that gets us into trouble. When I'm talking about an anchor, I'm strictly talking about an object that we can place our full attention on, because what anxiety feels like for me is my mind is all over the place what's going to happen there? And oh my God, I can't believe this. And in the worst case scenario and everyone's going to get sick and and, and I'm going to lose people. So you see how the mind proliferates. And so it's like being in a storm for me. An anchor means, okay. And I can, we can go through 10 different anchors if you like finding an anchor that works for you. And that's the one thing the mind focuses on. So for example, if you're doing yoga, you have a drishti, right? You have a spot that you focus your eyes on. So that, people don't think about it that way, but that's an anchor. And that actually is part of the reason yoga is so calming. Or focusing on the the locks, the bandhas, right? Keeping the muscles tight in certain areas. Anything where you have to bring your full attention into a movement, or it's a position of the triangle pose, and being aware of the whole body. Guess what you're not thinking about? You're not thinking about the future. And you're not thinking about the past. So in that case, the body is the anchor. Most people who been introduced to meditation or mindfulness or familiar, they say, well, pay attention to your breath. Well, the breath is the most common anchor that people use because it's always there. It's not the best for everyone, but the breath is an anchor. And that's where we just pause. We become aware that we're breathing and we sense what it's like to be breathing in and out. And it it doesn't sound like rocket science because it isn't. It's just getting rid of all the thoughts and going back into the senses, back into the body. So those are a few anchors. So we talked about the body, we talked about yoga, we talked about drishti or the vision or the sight. Another example of that would be just a candle. If you have a little shrine in your room or you want to set something up, just set up a little altar or something where you have a loved one maybe. You could have a picture of someone and that can be your anchor. The anchor can be any one of the senses, something you're smelling like incense, just seeing if for five minutes you can pay attention to that smell. And every time the mind drifts off, be real gentle and say, come on back. Come on. That's not what we're doing right now. And by strengthening that muscle during moments of real deep practice, when we get into the real world, it almost kicks into autopilot. And the mind starts to focus where you want it to, not where the worried thoughts are. And you actually become better at noticing when thoughts are there
0: yeah and so you know the awareness and now thank you for further explaining anchor that has a new meaning to me and and did a great job giving very specific examples and you know you moved into that um, decentering is trying to put a name on what you're feeling write it down and kind of almost being a witness to that being what's happening and then you move to objectivity and the word objectivity gives me, you know, the thought that we would be able to look at things more clearly and maybe move us from that objectivity place of perhaps being able to detach enough to see things more clearly and to, to dig for the truth rather than it be led by fear. There is more calmness that allows you to think. With greater intention, and I thought I would mm-hmm. get you to pick up there, and then maybe move it even further down the line for folks.
2: Mm-hmm. Great. So there's so the next steps, which we haven't talked about yet. And you're Terry. You're 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 picking this up perfectly. Uh, uh, the next step after we've gotten some objectivity or some distance from our own internal life, we don't identify so strongly with it. We can look at it more calmly and see the truth that's there, as if we were someone watching us from across the room as if we were a good friend. So once we have that objectivity, the next thing is to notice any resistance within ourselves to the way things are. That's the basic practice because all suffering is resistance. All suffering is resistance. Whether it's grief, we're resisting, letting go of something. Whether it's anxiety, we're resisting a future that hasn't happened yet. Whether it's self judgment and judging our bodies, it's resisting the way things are in an unkind way. So if we start by thinking that all suffering is is resistance, well what's the antidote? Acceptance. So acceptance is a huge piece of the puzzle. It's the next big tier there that we really it's worth it's worth practicing. And there are obstacles. So someone might say, what are you talking about? If I accept the way things are, they're never gonna get better. If I accept that I could get get sick if i don't have masks and i don't don't do anything about it that's horrible That's a stupid idea well that's because acceptance doesn't mean not having the intention to make things better for yourself or keep yourself safe all it means is that in the moment that something is happening realizing that resisting it emotionally in that moment only makes it worse You're fighting and unless we find
0: yourself.
2: yeah it's that internal fighting so the famous psychologist' name was Carl Rogers, and he was the father of humanistic psychology. He said that the, there's a strange paradox that once I accept myself, I can then notice the changes within me that I want to see, but only once I accept myself completely as I am right now. And so the practice, Terry, after getting that objectivity from our experience is Noticing how much we're resisting the way things already are. How silly that is. And saying, oh, you know what? I'm going to accept it. Is that that fair? Does that make sense?
0: Yes. And then it would be, um, okay, I've gotten to stage uh, five, and I'm I'm very aware of what I'm resisting. And I have this intellectual desire to accept it, but I have this internal struggle, and I'm like fighting with myself. Do you have any recommendations on things that people can do that tools or, or just words of encouragement that might guide Mm -hmm. somebody through what might be a really difficult stage of this final enlightenment, if you will.
2: Absolutely. Uh, The way you said it is perfect because it's, it's really, there's an internal struggle and part of the struggle is mental in terms of thought. So we have to work with our thoughts and part of it is emotional. So we need to learn to work with our emotions. And here's something that I've learned. You can't fight with an emotion because the emotion will always win. (laughs) And so, so the first step we talked about is the thoughts we accept, the emotions, whatever they are, be it grief, anger, sadness, frustration, rage, we just notice them, we accept them. And the answer to your question, Terry, is we need to provide ourselves with some comfort, with some soothing. And the way we do that is we offer ourselves kindness. So what would you do if you had a friend who was going through this, this hard time, who was really struggling right now? Before we even have to think the answer of, well, what do we do for ourselves? Just think about what you would do if your best friend were sitting in the room weeping because of how hard this COVID virus is. What would you say to her? What would you do?
0: So interesting, what a great question, because often, we can caregive to other people and uh, and then we don't care give to ourselves because I know that our society kind of sets us up not to do introspection, self-reflection, self-care, and that self mm-hmm. word has somehow selfish attached to it sometimes in terms of mental construct. And so mm-hmm. I love the fact that you've pointed this whole thing back inward, but yet with, the question of what would you do for a friend? Because that's exactly what you need to do for yourself. And so I think for mm-hmm. me, you know, maybe just hold sacred space and listen and give them a hug and encourage them and make recommendations mm-hmm. on how they can take care of themselves and just say kind, gentle things and re- reinforce mm-hmm. and remind them that they are safe and not alone. And I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. that's pretty powerful because like if I could learn to coach myself like that, That's a great way to go up for yourself in in terms of what I think you are sharing with us. Did that capture? Mm -hmm. And I'd certainly love to hear.
2: It did. It did. And this is the reason I asked you is because this is a personal question. We all have different ways of being with those that we love. Some of us are in a process of trying to get even better at that. And so for me, if it were my best friend, or if it were another way to look at it, Terry, would be, what if it was yourself, Terry, when you were five years old? and you you hurt yourself. You fell down and you were bleeding in your knee. What would you say to that child? You would hug that child. You would comfort her. You would love her. You would caress her face. You'd keep her safe. And you'd say loving things. You'd say, I love you. You're gonna be okay. I'll be there for you. You're safe. And so the art here is turning those around and speaking them, saying them to ourselves even just giving ourselves a gentle caress on the face or just hugging ourselves a little bit and saying, I love you and you're going to be okay and I'm going to take care of you. In our society, it's, it's almost a habit to judge ourselves. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to pick on the fitness industry, but uh, there is a strong trend to say, I'm not fast enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not this enough. How many of us do that? when we look at Instagram and we see somebody else or when we look at an advertisement or TV. And that's just natural. There's nothing wrong with doing that. That's only natural, that's advertising. And that's the natural human tend to compare with other people. The question is how much suffering does that bring to us? Can we notice that voice of self-judgment and recognize how unhelpful it really is? And we know from science now that by being compassionate to ourselves, we, in fact, do not reduce our motivation to change. We do not take away our own drive to get better. Just the opposite. People who are kind to themselves are more effective in sports and athletics. It's kind of like, which coach do you want? Do you want the coach that's always yelling at you almost with hatred and venom? Or do you want the coach that's loving you, but's also being very tough and saying, "Nope, you can do better than that, but I love you as you are."
0: Yeah, it's, those are good analogies. And we certainly are seeing mindfulness show up on the football field and in conference rooms and coaches are starting to integrate it, even fitness coaches on how we can help people perform better, not just by drill sergeant mentality, but really being present in the moment and having more self-awareness and compassion and have Mm -hmm. that be words of encouragement rather than this kind of dogged, you need to jump higher, go faster, you know, all the things that can be somewhat militant. And so it's interesting to see how mindfulness is showing up in our culture. Seal, any, any thoughts from you on what Jonathan's sharing? Or no, is- I,
1: I, I appreciate what you're saying because I think that you just talked about the fitness industry and we have this hard drive And I think for people, like, in your profession or any of us that are in wellness or health of any of that, there's this expectation of us, of our individual, like, I'm talking for myself, of, like, uh, you can, like, don't worry about that. Like, don't focus on yourself. Be more concerned about worrying about other people or, um, you know, putting aside my own feelings and not really facing what I am experiencing. And so I think just being able to... Know, show compassion if you're a coach or you're somebody that is in the profession like you're in. You have to show compassion to yourself because you'll get to the point where you won't be able to do that for others because you'll be dry. And so I just really think that your perspective and the, the anchor part I think is really important. Just addressing that, like, the real anxiety that not just everybody's feeling, but like really everybody's feeling It doesn't matter your profession everybody's feeling it mm-hmm. which is makes it more humanizing makes us all you know, mm-hmm. you know i know i really appreciate you addressing that and really get, like simple things for us to do to kind of zone back in and appreciate who we are and, uh, and you know uh, gain some perspective and really get centered thank you for that
2: sure yeah
0: so it's interesting, um, the whole perfection is an illusion and if you're chasing perfection you're going to be really worn out because you're never going to find it and so how can we exhale and let go and if we can't let go it's like can we just at least let things be for a while and, and just not driving ourselves so hard and not trying to jump over um, hurdles where the standards are far beyond what we should truly be able to really more mindful in how we move through life and have more self-awareness and compassion not just for ourselves but others and not giving up our drive and motivation and to recognize that those two things coexist together, which is pretty cool. Um, If you are a listener, Jonathan is practicing what he's preaching. He's outside um, on a nature walk. And so you might hear a little wind in the background. So just know that He is doing what he needs to do to take care, and we are pivoting and very much embracing what I consider, and Syl and I talked about it earlier this week, is just the rawness and the realness and the transparency and just letting go of all these rigid standards. I mean, we are in community Mm -hmm. hearing a beautiful conversation and it doesn't have to audio perfect, right? (laughs) Because it's the information, (laughs) and content that really matters. I mean, when you strip it all away, this makes you start to look at a lot of things slightly different. And, you know, I'm looking for intention, not perfection. And I am all about seizing the moment to have these virtual conversations and they're rich and full and they don't have to be perfect and slick. Um, It's really how we can touch people's lives. And certainly your own story, Jonathan, and moving us through this amazing flow of really, because I think we are, we need to give processes for people to kind of understand mm-hmm. how they can move themselves through and can mm-hmm. i move us to the two scoops and then i want to ask you a, a one final question but i just feel like yeah. this is so full and so i am going to say the two scoops are this beautiful ritual of compassion is what i'm going to call it to become aware and to anchor to then, what's called decentering and kind of being a witness to what you're feeling, writing it down, naming it, and then that begins to give you a little bit more separation and more objectivity so that you can have a more clear minded conversation with yourself about what really is the truth. How can I process this information in a more neutral way? place or from a more neutral place without all this anxiety and voices um, that are vying for my attention. And then this resistance is to recognize when you're in that place of objectivity, your mind is arm wrestling. Your body is like probably feeling a lot of stuff that is resisting. And so there's this period of like, oh my God, I'm very aware. As a matter of fact, thanks for putting me into this even more aware place. Now I'm really fighting myself. And, and it's in that place of finality that I don't want to suffer anymore. I want to put down my gloves and I want to lean into this place called acceptance. And I want to see things for what they are. And I want to have this very powerful, kind conversation with myself. And my thinking is if I can't give it to myself, like you said, what would I tell a best friend in this situation? based on whatever fear or whatever my voice is or whatever I might be experiencing, what would I do to help that person find some stability, to feel at peace, to feel some level of equanimity, and to really just feel safe, I mean, at the end of the day, safe. And so that was my recap of that six-part compassion process model mm-hmm. thing, right? Mindfulness might be the mm-hmm. real word for it and um see what was your what was your big takeaway oh I, I think the big takeaway was just
1: acknowledging what's going on you know personally like not just taking the time to acknowledge how i'm feeling and that it's okay <laughs> um and mm-hmm. going back to just having compassion for myself and i think when you do that and then you can get i think i can see clearer by just taking the time to do that instead of pushing things down and not acknowledging it.
0: Very Mm -hmm. powerful. So Mm -hmm. one thing that I would, I think, be remiss in not getting you to weigh in on is what advice would you give to folks as we're moving through this high stress time and we're trying to do our part in flattening this curve, trying to contain a virus that is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I just would love to Have you share with our listeners what part they can play, Jonathan, because we're all in this together and everybody's actions matter. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I I so appreciate your asking that because uh, meditation is not about sitting quietly for longer than the next person. That's not what this is about. It's about action. It's about being in the world in a compassionate way where we want to do things that alleviate other people's suffering. And if that's not the ultimate question on your mind, it's not really mindfulness that we're practicing. It's more just uh, training our brain to be more focused and that doesn't really help, help anyone else. I think about how we can help in expanding circles. First, looking at ourselves, keeping yourself safe. And that number one means nourishing the body. So with plenty of sleep, exercise and hydration, it means nourishing the mind, whether it's um, journaling, gratitude practice, spiritual practice, being with loved ones, whatever that is. And then talking specifically about the virus itself, we know that it's spread in droplets and from person to person. So washing your hands for 20, 30, 40 seconds, all surfaces of your hands after you've touched things, or even once an hour, keeping that six to 10 feet of distance if you're around people uh, that you don't know whether or not they've been exposed, Uh, staying at home and recognizing that we all have a desire to get back to work On the other hand, if we have any hope of surviving this as a globe, we need to honor that staying at home and really, obviously I'm not at home right now, but we are allowed to get our our moment of exercise and that's what I'm doing, staying distant. But I'm talking about not gathering in groups of friends where you might be getting the virus and passing it to your parents or passing it to your children. And then in expanding circles, everyone has something they can do to make a difference. Even if you're sitting there thinking, what can I do? Whether it's a favorite charity that you want to donate to, whether you have a friend that's a nurse that you can call him or her and say, hey, you just want to talk for a little bit? Uh, I'll be your shoulder right now. That's one person. But guess what? That one person interacts with 100 people during that day. And the effect of one act of kindness towards someone on the front lines ripples outwards, and it gives them a sense of courage. I can't tell you how many people have, just said to me, you know, I'm not sure what I can do to help, but I want you to know that we're there with you in spirit. And I carry that with me. On a more practical level, there if you go to change.org, that's one place you can go, there are movements to get more protective equipment to healthcare workers on the front line because as you know, there is a shortage and the highest risk right now along with the elderly and the frail are doctors and nurses on the front lines. Very high risk there. And imagine going and not knowing if you're gonna have enough masks or shields. So, there's a, there's a petition now with almost 100,000 signatures just to have the government say, hey, if we don't protect the people on the front lines, there's gonna be nobody there to protect us. Um, and it takes a minute to fill that out. And there are many things like that that can be done. Providing food is there, a, is there a, a food pantry or is there a way of just providing a nice lunch for healthcare workers or somebody on the front lines? So, physical or psychological support. And what you all are doing, Keeping people fit, helping strengthen their immune systems, keeping them in a positive state of mind, the effect of your work ripples outward. Anyone can ask themselves one question, who can I help and what little thing, no matter how small, can I do to make a difference?
0: Wow, that's that awesome. is powerful. I mean, just the pay it forward, those simple acts of kindness, and they don't cost a dime and they don't take a lot of effort, but boy, do they make a big difference. And if we all... Mm-hmm collectively and consciously do that, I mean, we can affect someone else's life every single day. Thank you so very much. And you you guys are on the front lines. I mean, we, we couldn't do it. We couldn't survive this literally without you. And you're in the trenches and you literally go to battle and you are so... Appreciated. I, I. It's just hard to even put words around the gratitude that I feel. You know, I know that there are other people that are keeping the world running. I mean, people that are in government and picking up our trash and delivering our mail and keeping these um, grocery stores stocked with food and, and able to check us out. And all of all of you guys um, that are doing the part to keep the world running, but in particular. You guys that are in healthcare just just so so appreciate and I I just hope that you feel that and you said that you um, have gotten lots of people sending you supportive messages and I hope you get like buried in them because you deserve <laughs> that and, and so does everybody else that you work with in healthcare.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, Terry, thank you very much. And that as you're saying that, it makes me just remember the most important thing for me is that we are all connected. We are all connected and We can't do this without me. Um, We can't do this without you. We can't do this without the front lines in New York City and all the other places that are getting hit so hard. Uh, The people who clean up the garbage in the hospitals and the Mm. respiratory technicians and the pharmacists and the delivery people. If you just meditate for one minute, just pause and think about the next bite of food that you eat. Where did that come from? Uh, from From the farmer to the delivery person, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same thing in healthcare. We can't survive without each other.
0: Yeah, it's that supply chain and everybody on that chain is important. So true. So I'm I'm just like this is two scoops and I'm Terry and I'm Seal and we are happy to be bringing you some inspiration along with we hope meaningful information. And until next time, be safe. Stay inside and keep yourself healthy.